Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I have with me Brittany Spanos from Rolling Stone and Christian Horde from Rolling Stone. Hey, guys. Hey. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about our new cover story, which features one Harry Styles. And we also have with us the author of that cover story, who is a, a name that uh, rang familiar to us when we thought about uh, who, who should write this story. And uh, I think we have him on now. Cameron Crow, are you here? I am. How are you doing? Good. Thanks so much for being here. It is a pleasure. <laughs> awesome, man. Um, so before we talk about Harry, it is, uh, I think as we've been talking on, about on volume all day, it is the one-year anniversary of Prince's death. Yeah. And I thought I would kind of ask everyone, Cameron, do you have a, 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 a favorite uh, Prince song or a, a famous uh, or a favorite uh, Prince moment in his career or even a, a personal thing, something you want to share about uh, Prince? I, I, you know... I'm into all phases of Prince, but lately I've really been loving um, going down the cover versions road, huh. and he's got so many great covers, and I always loved uh, One of Us, that Joan Osborne song that he yeah. covered in The Patient. I thought that was great. And um, and then Case of You, the Joni Mitchell song, yeah. which he was doing up to the very end in the um, piano and microphone tour. I, I just love his stuff but his covers are amazing too yeah the whole sort of Prince Joni Mitchell axis and influence has really always been fascinating to me it's a, a kind of a, a different kind of path into Prince's harmonic uh, influences yeah. interesting uh, Brittany what, what's your favorite Prince kind of song or moment or I in recent years my favorite song has become If I Was Your Girlfriend um, I became really oh, obsessed great. with the Camille sort of lost album sure kind of taking on this you know new alter ego this female alter ego and I think that song is just incredibly fascinating I love that it made it onto Sign of the Times um, but that's been one of my favorites and I love the lyrics on that song so much yeah Camille lives and uh, oh, good. <laughs> Christian how about you I think in the past year my favorite uh, 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 sort of Prince thing is the uh, concert documentary Sign of the Times uh, yeah which was shot, I think, at Paisley Park in 1987. I only know about it because Rob Sheffield sent me a YouTube link about a year ago. <laughs> it it may have been released since then. It was not at the time officially released. Uh, I don't know why because it's really awesome. And it is sort of maybe the the best sort of display of all of Prince's talents, um, you know, in anywhere in his catalog. Like, he really is, you know, Jimi Hendrix one minute and James Brown the next minute. Um, actually, the version of If I Was Your Girlfriend in there is, is really awesome. He, he kind of reinvents several of his songs, and, and including that one. Yeah. It's... It is hard to find that one moment that encapsulates all of Prince because he was so yeah. many princes. <laughs> there was so much going on. Um, you know, I, I would say my 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 favorite moment is something I t I, t I talked about a bunch last year and and wrote about, which was uh, you know I I had a visit to him to Paisley Park in 2013 that was um, deeply deeply memorable to say the least. And I got to he played uh, a couple songs like sat me on the stage in front of him and and, and played played a couple songs with uh, his band uh, Third Eye Girl uh, and he wanted to see if it made my you know the hairs on my arm stand up and I was like yeah yeah pretty much <laughs> <laughs> Brian um, did, did you have a tape recorder or a digital recorder uh, I, I will I, uh, there were no recorders allowed at Paisley <laughs> Park and that will be the last I will say about that. damn <laughs> um, a friend of mine uh, was his guitar tech for, for a long time and said that when they were doing recording sessions like Prince would come in and to blow off steam, he would do, he, again, he would do covers. He, right. would, he, he did a cover of 
Was it Jesse Johnson that did that song, Oh Sheila? I think so. He did a cover of a Prince ripoff. <laughs> they want so bad to be me. And then he covered them doing him. Then he did some U2 songs. And then he said, okay, Larry, let's do our stuff. <laughs> so somewhere in those vaults, you can only imagine. There must be just mm. Yes, yeah, yeah, I hope I hope it's not just a thing where there's a legal battle for the next decade and we never hear anything, which is I'm afraid sort of where it's uh, headed, but we'll see. Yeah, you don't want it to go down that that kind of Elvis road where it's like, you know, <laughs> 5,000 albums with one remix of a hit that's new. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. So we shall it's see. Um so Harry Styles. Harry so, Cameron, how much uh, One Direction <laughs> music had, had made it into your skull before uh, you, you took on this assignment for us? <laughs> but more than Martin Scorsese in the documentary. <laughs> what is it? This is us. Um, uh, it's, it, I, I knew some of the stuff and really loved the songs, and, but it, was, it took Christian and Rob Sheffield and a whole team to help me uh, learn all the lore that went behind it, but like uh, I-, I love the One Direction stuff, and I love Olivia, and I think Harry was kind of surprised at how much I loved of the One Direction stuff. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, One Direction is... Uh, always fascinating to me is I actually did <laughs> I, I reported a One Direction cover story that that never uh, that, that never came to pass for complicated reasons uh, part of it was that they were at the time under 18 some, at least one of them and then that that screwed up some of our advertising and so we just it just never came to pass and so wow. I uh, and they were they were like little puppy dogs that was in 2012 uh, but one thing that was very clear to me <laughs> very clear to me is that Harry Styles was the was the breakout star um, and the other thing that was clear was that Zane had very different musical tastes than the other guys. And, right. it, and One Direction, right, I'm, I'm sure this struck you, Cameron, were very rock-leaning for a boy band. I mean, they were way more like sort of rock, quote-unquote, white music-leaning than in sync a million years before. They were like, uh, yeah. yeah, it's an interesting thing. I mean, Brittany, what... It's like when, when Ron Wood plays with them. yeah. It's not ridiculous. Right. <laughs> great. You know, you're, you're right. They're very, they're very rock leaning. He, Harry didn't really, I was trying to work a theory where the Jackson five were one of the very first boy bands. It's, I, I think like Harry had to like, not a lot of passion for a big boy band argument discussion. <laughs> geek out. <laughs> he was kind of like, well, yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, sure. Jackson five. Great. <laughs> it was, there was no, genealogy discussion to be had but um but he he was great but i interrupted Brittany. sorry yeah no i mean how did that work in your mind as far as the way a one direction fit into the the pop world of america because it did strike me that they were kind of off on their Mm -hmm. own they weren't really fitting into the current of what pop radio sounded like they were more british in some ways you know i mean that was always really the really interesting thing was the shift that they made for the album four was um i mean with midnight memories was kind of 
Midnight Memories and Four were such a huge shift from their first two albums, which were a lot more like EDM pop, Euro pop, kind of really radio friendly. What makes you beautiful? One thing, um, yeah. little things like things like that. And then all of a sudden they released this kind of like hair metal influenced <laughs> album. And then they were like, we're going to make a Mumford album next. And it kind of all came together. I made in the AM, but they always really shifted away from that. And Harry especially was probably the most vocal about his love for 70s rock, classic rock. Um, I mean, like the Stevie Nicks cake thing, like showing up to Rolling Stones concerts, like things like that. Like he was always one of the more vocal ones about how classic rock 70s FM kind of influenced him personally. Cameron, what kind of questions did Harry have for you about your experiences and about your world and about, you know, the 70s, whatever? He had a few. It's interesting. I was thinking when Brittany was saying that about, you know, how Harry kind of had a, a... a love for the 70s stuff and everything. It was interesting that his, all of the conversations we had about it, he was he was like, melodies, it's all about melodies. And he feels like he learned melodies from those records that he listened to, or the CDs that he listened to when he was living at home. But there was an interesting moment, there was one session that Christian knows, we had this kid harpoon session that was in and out of the story, he, where Harry was recording two new songs right before he left town to kind of begin this new phase he's in. These so songs are coming out of him like crazy, and at one point, um, the producer and the, kind of the co-writer, Kid Harpoon, goes, well, let's let's do this, this old school move, and we'll do blah, 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 blah. And, and Harry said, no, <laughs> let's do the most modern tech thing we can possibly do because tape and analog was just the best system they had in the day. So let's go with the best system we have today and just make it about the melodies, which I thought was really great because he was kind of smart enough to know, let's, let's not go retro in a slavish way. Hmm. You know, let's, let's use all the, the tools that we have to kind of make it a melodic thing, not necessarily as kind of an airless you know, pop, you know, dance thing, but let's let's embrace the new tech doing old school love of melody. And I, I thought that was so smart of him. Huh. And that's kind of what the album is. Yeah. It really does it really comes from him. And and he's a big music geek in, mm. in the greatest way. So I think that started to happen in the One Direction albums where the more he kind of had a say, the more you saw the stuff leaning in that direction. No pun intended. <laughs> so was he pumping you for like Zeppelin stories? Like what, what did he want to know from you? Not much. He, he, um, he's, he's not a huge, huge Bowie fan. Huh. So he mostly had questions about like how much the aesthetic of guys like Bowie and Jimmy Page ruled as opposed to like how this solo happened or what they were like when they did this or that. He was kind of like almost all about the music and and how guys that were at the head of their bands handled ah, right. the, holding the wheel, you know? How much trepidation did he have about this classic going solo thing that is is his career right now? I think he had a lot. I think the whole kind of under, right underneath the surface of the story is, is him going, oh, I had this wonderful time and this great creative experience. Now I've got to step out and get out of the bubble and be judged and, and, you know, take the big ride. And, um, 
I think he was nervous about how Sign of the Times was going to be received, being that it was like a, a long song mm. and, you know, nothing like Ed Sheeran or <laughs> stuff that's just commanding the airwaves and lists. So I think he was nervous about that. But when it came out and, and people embraced it for being, you know, quote unquote real music, I think he was <laughs> super relieved and happy and then rolled into SNL with lots of confidence. What was your uh, what was your kind of first meeting with him for this story at least? What well, what was that like? The the first time I met him was at the memorial for Glenn Fry and I was kind of surprised that he knew Glenn from the Eagles and I guess they'd become friends. Huh. And and so he was at this memorial and so I'd met him a few times and he was completely unassuming and and you know just kind of really missing his friend and stuff so I didn't know quite what the guy was going to be like who'd show up to do this profile so I was just studying up on some older profiles that I always loved and loved and one of them was was this Joan Didion profile of Jim Morrison and the Doors mm-hmm. there's this moody kind of you know the Doors are waiting for Jim to show up man at the studio and finally Jim shows up like lighting matches and staring at them and nobody mentions they've been waiting for him for hours. It's just really <laughs> funny and great. So I was like, this is, this is kind of the great mood for maybe going to the studio and waiting for Harry to show up and to see what that vibe is going to be like before and after. Meanwhile, like te- this text from Harry comes in like, when do you want to start the story? Like, I'll come and pick you up. I'll bring a coffee. I'll take you. We'll, I'll drive. We'll go where we have to go. And I'm thinking, like, we're so far away from Jim Morrison and the lit matches. This is not going to be that. No. It was, it was really um, a guy that was kind of eager to jump into his solo career and to talk about it for the first time, you know, without a lot of handlers around. Though, though I think he was shy at first. He really opened up. Totally. Uh, as a side note, I will say one of the funniest things about that John Didion story is how deeply unexcited she was to be in the studio with the Doors. You know? <laughs> deeply, you know, deeply. I don't know why I ever thought that would be, you know, interesting for the Harry Styles press, but I don't know. I just ended up there, nowhere <laughs> close to what happened. But she's amazing, and oh, in sure. that profile, John Didion just like kills it. It's such a great mood. Yeah, it, but what what happened was um, also like Harry showed up, just so enthusiastic about this band that it's his new band, and uh, they don't have a name yet, I think, or if they ever gonna ever gonna have one. But he was so excited about this band that nobody knows anything about. Right. That really consumed most of the, you know, first hours of the interview. The, you know, you you. Uh you sort of have had, uh, you know, an, another career <laughs> that is not that is not uh, profile musicians. And does it when you jump back into the mode of of doing something like this, something you did many years ago and then have done periodically uh, to great effect ever since? Does it do you d- does it take a minute to get back into the rhythm of doing this old thing that you used to do or is it something in, in some ways because I've seen you also seen you say that in some ways you're like always a music journalist because even if you're on set you're talking to people about what they're listening to and stuff That's like that so, so how does it work for you? I didn't feel like that much of a stretch Most, mostly 
it was just like what kind of recording system Rolling Stone wants <laughs> <laughs> their guys to use and girls to use now. And um, so Christian very helpfully suggested just doing it on the iPhone or just to have a backup with the with the digital recorder. But the main thing is like I've always been the guy that just takes a million notes. Mm. And um, and always runs the tape recorder and, or digital recorder and and you know like I always try and get like what they're listening to and the off the record ish conversations that later you know you can say well we had this exchange I'd like to use that it's just to always be on duty right the way I've always been. I think that's uh, that that's that's definitely a philosophy that that seems to work. Uh, you know, it, it it is kind of the my thing about always rolling the ta- the recorder, and I even I say tape, and it's not as <laughs> mid tape for a long time. Yeah, but yeah. the thing about always is is you know that way they're just used to you being there to document everything and there isn't some moment where oh the story is starting it's like okay he's there he's always recording and he can't possibly use all of this yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. so they tend to relax it's like he, th- this dude recorded 12 hours he can't possibly get all the stuff and it's like oh yeah we're getting <laughs> so everything true. That's, <laughs> that's so true <laughs> it, it, there's, a, there's a certain trick to it um, it's true I'm my new hero is Patrick Doyle and the Ed Sheeran story but it's like you know by around shot number five how he's he manages to just Stay on it, man. <laughs> but I heard a rumor he was he was shooting blanks a little bit. It's not not a rumor. <laughs> I, I well, I, I actually I told I told Patrick uh, based on experience that don't be afraid to throw a shot on the floor and then pretend to drink it. <laughs> like, there you go. Like, there was, there you that go. was happening <laughs> because because otherwise because you know like if. <laughs> But the the other thing is the the recorder is always sober whether whatever you are. That, that's true. That's, that story came out while we were doing the Harry Styles yeah. interviews, and it was it was a stunner to 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 Harry and to me. It's like, oh man, we're doing this really wrong. <laughs> we're drinking no shots. Right. Come on. But we, we tried to adapt. To the new Doyle ethic. <laughs> That's all we try to do. <laughs> Patrick's gonna love this. Um, did either the experience of reporting this story or Harry himself remind you of any profile subjects of of the past that you encountered? That's a really good question. He, I would say he didn't really, hmm. because uh, there were there were pretty few interviews that Rolling Stone uh, assigned me to. That, that involved somebody who was just getting started. I mean, some sometimes they were at a new phase in their career, but like the the elephant in the room a little bit for the Harry Styles article was that he'd never really done an album before. Right. Yet, yet everybody around him and even he had all this experience. He was. It was like his first interview in a lot of ways, and. Um, we put a little bit of that into the story where he, he, he went from being really reticent about personal questions. I mean, he didn't even mention One Direction at all in the first <laughs> you know, hours of interview that we did. It was always like, well, the, I had a band. <laughs> yeah, I know you had a band. Let's say, can we just say the name? Let's just say the name. Wow. But he, he, he never said it. I think he kind of went in saying this is all new and, um, you know, and and it was in many ways. And then, as he opened up, he he talked about the band a lot. 
and really defended the future of the band. Hmm. So in a way, I I never had a, had an experience with a guy like that. W- what I have to say was really great was um, as we worked on the story and more questions came up, he was completely available and ready for more. So when Christian made the comment like, there are, there's a large amount of his fan base that are young women. Does he feel that he has to prove himself to a different kind of audience as a solo artist? And what is, how does he feel about that transition? So it's like I asked him that question and, and boom, he pops out with this defense statement about how he feels about, you know, young women and, and his audience. And it was, like, I think it's the best quote in the story, really, where he's just kind of like realized that he can use the interview a little bit for a bully pulpit mm. for how he feels, which I don't think he was able to do that much for just for pure time purposes on in the One Direction days. I think their interviews were like so highly charged and short. It was like if you thought, if you paused to think another one of the dudes is going to jump in. <laughs> so. Yeah. No, I, and I can attest to that. It was, it was, they were so protected, you know, and I, I don't know what they were afraid of. In other words, their handlers, but it was like, <laughs> yeah, it was like, we're talking like, you know, little bits of time with all five of them. Uh, and you do get that sense in the story. This is a guy who like just was happy to have a chance to really talk. And on that quote, yeah. I will, I will say, I, you know, sincere is that that was a very smart thing for him to have said I have to say career wise boy was that a smart thing to say I mean he, I the, the whole the entire internet rose up as one to like <laughs> applaud him uh, for, for his wokeness and, and smartness in saying that so I, I do, do you think that anyone had suggested do you think he had he had been at all coached in that answer or do you think it was pure sincerity no I don't think that's uh, great again really great question no and I thought that myself it was it was like it was just like, you know, um, pressing a button that had been, you know, there for him to be pressed. It was just like, boom, he came right out with it. It was probably the least thought out thing that he said. Good for him. For, for a while, um, at, the, at least at the very beginning, like, to, and it's true, like, I had to kind of bite my tongue a little bit to realize, like, he's really thinking about this stuff. Like, it's not that the question needs to be rephrased or anything. Just, like, you know, just saying to myself, like, shut up. <laughs> right, right. Just shut up. And and he would kind of think through the answers and stuff. But that one, it was like, I think he was, I think it was like he felt a little shove in the question about his audience. Mm. Like, the, the longer version of that, which it isn't much longer, he says, he says like, a lot of guys came to those shows, too, I might say. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they ended up at least having a good time. But, but by guys, he means Rob Sheffield. <laughs> he means Rob Sheffield. Yeah. <laughs> and, and all all those of Sheffield's ish substance. It's like he's he's like I think those guys had a good time. But the ones the ones that never lie and never have artifice, as he says, are those very you know young girls that, that don't get listened to for being serious music fans and they are yeah and I just I thought yeah that's really really smart but it was also kind of his schoolyard answer I think you were sort of sent in in a way that I would imagine matches past eras with 
there were a few things that had to be addressed and and one of them was uh like zane (laughs) and the other one was taylor swift and is it that thing the same thing that anytime you had an assignment where it's like there's these because that's sort of how it works for me is like there's often a couple big sort of balloons floating in my mind Uh like got to address this got to address this but but can't but you don't want to in the conversation you know hit it too hard because you don't want to act like that's all you care about because it's not all you care about but you do have to address these so how did you kind of handle knowing that these things had to be in there and 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 dealing with with those moments with him just waiting for the right time really and it's after we had listened to the album he just seemed very relaxed so yeah. that's 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 when we talked about Zane and stuff um, and I was kind of hoping that no Taylor Swift song came on <laughs> overhead so that, that, that <laughs> he wouldn't he wouldn't head us off at the pass with a really sm- smart short answer <laughs> like, like good thing we're not talking about her or something but it's he he was very cool about that. I think he kind of knew. Okay, it's 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 on the table, and we have to talk about it. And this is not a situation where a handler can say steer away from this area or that. He made a joke of it, you know, when when her name first came up, he, and, and it's in the story where he said, you know, just, I think I'm just gonna like before we go down this road, I'm gonna go take a little pee break, and you know, maybe I'll never come back. <laughs> so, <laughs> He took a long time to come back. Um, you know, the the server was like, "Is your friend coming back?" <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But he came back and dove into it. You begin the story with, um, and well, actually, I will say about Taylor. I, I I sort of felt like she maybe got the best of him because by writing those like incredibly incisive songs, it it almost seemed to leave him stumbling for words. <laughs> to say it's just like relationships yeah. are hard. I don't know. <laughs> just listen to her song. She killed me on this. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so you, you begin. I did my best. Yeah. But you know, <laughs> she's she's quite the journalist. <laughs> and uh, but he was he was cool and didn't didn't. Um, you know, didn't scoff at any question. I think he just really wanted to be a Rolling Stone cover or even, you know, sub-profile subject. I think he really loved that. Right. He, and he, we did talk about Rob Sheffield, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> but he, yeah, he he, uh, he embraced he, his role. You know, obviously, the, Rob yeah. Sheffield has written, you know, great stuff. The the way he, Rob writes about One Direction and, and Harry has been really good. And he... He definitely agreed. Um, it, yeah, I mean, it, it does seem that Harry embraced his role as the Rolling Stone cover profile subject, like understood his, <laughs> which is always nice. He just understood what was expected of him. Um, <laughs> and, he did. He but did. I want to talk about the opening of the story, which is a really nice sort of reconstructed scene of, of a, a bench at the top of Primrose Hill in London that looks over the skyline of the city and, and talking about Harry being there. How did that come up in the interview him being at the you know kind of reflecting around this this bench and and all that and how did you realize that that should be the lead of the story this came up very quickly because i realized that his quiet time was was for a lot of people the very tumultuous 2016 Mm. so I, i started out kind of saying like what was your 2016 like and he he started by talking about last Christmas, Christmas 2015, and that he was back home trying to figure out what the next year was going to be like. 
and and what the album would be, and and so that kind of gave it a frame. Um, and then when he finished, he went back home, you know, and hung out at the very places where he had been ruminating about what the album would be. He came back and would play it for his parents. So I thought, okay, that could be a good bookend thing. But mostly, I think he had a very different 2016 than a lot of people. I think he was kind of removed from a lot of world's politics and music stuff um, and and losing Prince and Bowie I think was 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 seismic but I think he was so into what this next record was going to be that I think he kept the world out quite a bit hmm. I think Brittany had a few questions for Cameron yeah um, kind of building off of what you were saying about seeing him in this sort of relaxed 2016 I mean that was what struck me the most about the profile is how private and intimate it feels and especially for a pop star of his nature it's usually like these screaming girls were chasing after him down the street um and I mean especially when he was in New York I interviewed some fans outside of SNL and they were shocked that they couldn't find him all week and they couldn't find his hotel or where he was staying or what he was doing um I mean like what was that experience of being with someone who like finally is in this moment after like five straight years of being sort of his location and his life being known for so long um what was that experience of seeing him in this more private moment of his life he seemed i was i was during the break i was kind of thinking about the question that that we were talking about earlier like who does he remind you of and and i sort of came up with david bowie without the fragile Hmm. kind of you know, David Bowie crossed with your 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 friends, you know, your sister's great boyfriend that's still in school. <laughs> like that's kind of like <laughs> that's Harry Styles. Like for, in my limited experience around him, was he he's like a great student of the aesthetic and everything, but was so unguarded. And maybe that's just L.A. Like nobody, with the exception of a few people that we wrote about in the story, nobody really recognized him, and and not even in that way where you, you you recognize him but pretend you don't recognize him, but everybody knows Terry Styles and the restaurants. Like, none of that. He just kind of moves through his his world making this record. But what I felt towards the end of it, like, just as we were leaving this last uh, recording session that he was doing, that, that like, the all of that was pounding at the door, waiting to just, you know, come screaming back into his life. Um, because people were starting to say goodbye to him at the studio where he'd worked, and you could you could see they were saying things that they hadn't said for months around him, and you could you could feel kind of the the, the big wave that was coming. But he's he's very unassuming and very much a student of how he was going to proceed. I think, mm-hmm. but no no mayhem on the street. Nobody followed him. He was never ducking around streets to avoid paparazzi. You know, it was like none of that. It was mostly just a guy in a Range Rover blasting tunes, driving to the places where we were going to either listen to the music or make some music. Mm-hmm. And um, with the new album, what kind of, what do you think will surprise people the most or were they going to hear on the album? Will it sound similar to Sign of the Times or um, what we've heard from later when One Direction? When you guys get to hear it? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I think it comes out in May. Kristen's Chris, heard a bit of it, right? Uh, they were offering to come play it, but I, I think that they also just wanted to, to take a peek at the cover story, so that that, that didn't happen. I, st- I still haven't heard it. 
Uh, oh, they're right. They were trying to sneak in her office to see an early. <laughs> I don't know if that's actually true, but they didn't, it didn't happen. I haven't heard it. Well, what it doesn't have is that that kind of like you know huge dance pop drop thing. You know mm-hmm. what it what it is 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 a really kind of personal album for him, but not not kind of like lone guy with a guitar, but like personal as he's kind of exploring all these different. Um, modes like and, and lyrically here's what I think will surprise people the most is is how clever and revealing the lyrics are that match these great tracks like you you do go away thinking like this this guy is really a good writer hmm. like you 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 see that he's clever and soulful at the same time the way a real music fan might be um, so, like, all the stuff that he loves, and if you're driving around with him, he's listening to all kinds of stuff. He synthesizes all of it into his own music, and like he says, melodies first. So it's 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 super catchy, but soulful in the way that you want, you know, somebody you're interested in to reveal themselves. That's what I thought. So really well produced. One of the, you know, hey, it's Christian. One of the one of the, the more interesting quotes in the piece is is his explanation of what "Sign of Sign of the Times," the first single, is about. Yeah. Um, he talks about it being written from the perspective of a mother who's just given birth and is dying, and it's sort of a message uh, from from the mother to uh, her her newborn child. And you know he explains this, and it's, it's sort of a strange and surprising quote. It's it's it seems like slightly out of nowhere as an inspiration. Do you have any idea where that came from? Yeah, I think I think he, he said this a couple of times that working with Jeff Basker, the producer, um, who's who did Uptown Funk, and you know worked with Kanye and Rolling Stones and a whole bunch of people like. He, he learned this thing from Jeff Baxter, Basker, that is, like, the words don't have to be completely logical. Mm. Like, sometimes you can, you can be not exactly what you're saying lyrically, and you'll get the same feeling across. So I think this, this kind of, like, serious thought behind Sign of the Times, he was able to shade it a little bit so that it's not obviously about that. But for him, it ended up, he he's, he talked about that song more than any other song. Mm. I think first because it was a breakthrough for him. Everybody was kind of living together at this place, and they were all eating, and he was just so jazzed that there was no time limit on the studio, it, that, it, that it was available to them around the clock. He, like, left this table and went and found a piano and was just trying out these chords using his phone to record the, you know, whatever ideas happen. And then this sign of the times comes out. And as he said, it was, um, it was nothing like the song that he was trying to write, but what it ended up being was kind of a, a, a statement about today without trying to be a capital S statement about today. So in his mind, it's about a, a mother saying goodbye to a newborn child, but I think he was a little shy about saying that's what it was about, mm. period. I think that's what it's mm. about to him. But, you know, it's about whatever you want it to be about as a listener. But he said it's the one song I'd listen to every word as I sing it. And it has that kind of meaning to it. Interesting, huh? 
Yeah, I just really like the falsetto part personally. <laughs> That's I really do. Yeah, <laughs> I just like the whole thing of like you're living together, you're recording together. You know, one guy's eating dessert, the other guy's playing guitar. It's just so Beatles. <laughs> totally <laughs> help, Cameron. What's the how much difference or commonality is there in the craft of screenwriting? This other craft that you've you've been uh, deeply involved with for for so many years, and and going back and writing a, a, a prose feature story like this, is is there anything that you learn from one going to the other, or is it just two totally different things? How does that work for you? I think it's the same thing. It's just journalism. It's 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 a matter of trying to catch what what was in the room and what you know. If you were doing a profile, it's like what what are the candles? What's the scent? What's on the wall? Hmm. In the same way, I think if you're t- trying to tell a story, you have to really pay attention to like what people are wearing, what their rooms look like, because re- all you're doing really is, is trying to capture life, whether it's in a story about Harry Styles or it's a movie. And to me, that all comes from detail, and journalism is a lot about detail, so it's all journalism. The funny thing is that, you know, there's a lot of when you go back and write a story for Rolling Stone. There's all this like sort of almost famous stuff, <laughs> like lurking over it in, in in this. You know, and one of the things was you know you you of course really did have to deal with a a, a fact checker, Alexis, yeah. who, who we, we've all worked with uh, on this story. And it's like, well, that's funny. Cameron Crowe's dealing with a fact checker, but you really did have to. You, you were providing backup, doing all the the things. It was it's just part of the process. Shout out to Alexis. She yeah. did a great job. Yeah. Alexis is amazing. Alexis is like the best Rolling Stone fact checker. There was kind of a a strange moment while I was going through all the fact checking stuff, and she was saying, "Where's your research on this? Do you have this written down in the note?" It's like, "Am I in the movie? Am I in? Where am I?" I will, I will say it was reality check. It was. It was. Really- she, she was pretty good. And then Harry Harry was quoting um, Billy Crudup's character a few times <laughs> when I was doing this, like saying, "Just make me look cool." I'm like, "What?" <laughs> Oh, you should have put that in the piece. <laughs> I know, I should have. I should have. Well, I will say it was longer version. It was it was somewhere. very uh, it was very really difficult not to make an almost famous reference during this whole process, Cameron. <laughs> and I, you know, it, uh, it I, I, I tried hard to resist. I made it through the whole thing. I was well when we were dealing with the fact checker when I was talking with Alexis. At one point, I was like, "This is like almost famous too." And she oh, was like, "Thank you for saying it because I was thinking it." Yes, yes. It was, it was, Sorry, yes. We, right we talked about that, but, but it was. Um, it was it was fun to kind of loop back into that reality again. And good thing I kept track of everything too. Yeah, there there is an insane hall of mirrors aspect to all this, of course. You know, and and I, very strange. I, yeah. and I think I've said to you is like there are many times as a Rolling Stone writer, uh, even though I'm I'm far from being 16 years old, but like you know when you, when you go up, like, this is like that movie Almost Famous. It's like oh really? Almost? Oh, I should check that out. I've never heard of that movie. Like, <laughs> and and I will say that that you you probably don't know is is that for many years now all of our intern applicants mentioned almost famous in the in their in their cover letters <laughs> so that's it's, hilarious <laughs> that's hilarious it's like you guys people know- don't realize people don't realize the whole fact checking thing they really don't i think because a lot of especially now a lot of stuff on the internet it's just like zero fact checking so it's just uh it's funny when people think about you know think that there's no such thing as fact checking whereas to 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 somebody in the position of like writing one of the, the stories for you guys, it's like it's the last lap around where it's like 
please don't let anyone deny that they said this. Please let this be. Let this survive because like, this is a really good quote and stuff. But um, yes, it was it was uh, it was it was a Twilight Zone experience just recently. Yes. But the, I mean, the freedom you obviously have had in movies is you get, you know, as much as it's journalism, you do get to make stuff up. And that must that that must have been that that must be very liberating over the years. It is liberating. But then you have a script supervisor that's sitting there with the script. And then if you change it later, it's back to the same loop. You know? <laughs> You're changing this. Now, what you really wrote was different. But no, it's it's fun to pay attention to the words. It's true. How much of your profiling background did you bring to doing the the Pearl Jam movie which I really really enjoyed I wasn't sure if I was I I, I wasn't sure if I was going to frankly because I already knew so much of the story and had written about them and 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 it, you know it, it ended up being so fresh and even even for people who knew every bit of it it was just fresh and tight and entertaining so so what how much of, of sort of just profiling background did you bring to that and also just fiction movie making skills or, or how much was making a rock documentary just a totally different thing the- the key, I think, to to like a good documentary, um, in many ways, is like the archive that the artist or the subject kept, mm. or do they know where things are? And the the great thing about Pearl Jam is that there's a guy named Kevin Shush who's been there from the very beginning, who always seems to have had one hand on it, on some kind of recording device mm. while he did his job. So Kevin is the keeper of this incredible archive. And he's, you know, he's, he doesn't let it out very easily. And even the Rolling Stone Hall of Fame guys, you know, knew that they had to be very careful about what to ask for from Kevin and stuff like that. But the thing is, like Pearl Jam, because they're kind of archivists and fans themselves, they, they have everything. So the cool thing about making Pearl Jam 20 was um, you just had access to all their stuff. They have any kind of, you know going from being this shy kid to being a rage raging young man with a lot of pain to process like that that was on film you know <laughs> you had it all mm. the tough stuff would be like the band like Pink Floyd or something like that where not a lot perhaps is in the archive but Pearl Jam had it had it all and plus the guys were ready to tell their story and that's that I don't I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but a big part of it is when when your subject is ready to tell the story. Totally, because mm-hmm. when they're ready, it's just it pops, and you hardly have to, you know, it's just a matter of making sure you're recording. <laughs> and that was Pearl Jam. That was a little, a lot Harry Styles towards the end, and that was a lot um, Eddie Vedder when we did our first cover story on them for Rolling Stone, like Eddie had a lot to say about his dad and his childhood and it was like boom I, I love when they choose Rolling Stone as the format and the place to tell their story that they need to tell and Joni Mitchell was the same way yeah yeah I love I love that the decade jump between Joni and, and, <laughs> and Pearl Jam but yeah and, and that's I, yeah. My, that, I, I've always loved that Pearl Jam story and I, I practically Thanks. memorized it before I, w- I went out to do my own in, in 2006 um, but uh, after Christian will be happy to know that that was a 75-page first draft. <laughs> Is that right? See, you got spared, brother. Wow. <laughs> well, Thanks, I, man. I, I cut that in half for you. <laughs> do, you do, the, do you do the same thing with screenplays? Do you, do you, well, obviously, there's yeah. A, yeah, you, it seems like you do, yeah. I'm looking at a 240-page draft 
of something right now. Got to got to make some cuts in that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, it's just fun to have like a first draft where you put everything out there and then you start cutting it back because I think it's, rewriting is the key to writing. So. Yeah, that's it's fascinating. I mean, some people some some people do put out the big draft and then cut it back. Some people don't. It's a, it's it's it, there seems to be no rhyme or reason to people's process, but it obviously works for you. Are, do you have the TV bug at all after roadies, or, or are you ready to, to go back to, to movies, or what? What is your? I do. I mean, it, roadies was just starting to really find its footing. I think towards towards the end of our first season, I think totally. there were a lot of people that hadn't really you know been in the tv groove the actors i thought the actors were like our best cast maybe ever they were so ready to go there and um and i, I just you know i think that we could have used another season at least but the the good thing was yeah tv is fun and and, and i'd never known the experience of a character that was going to die <laughs> where the actor is having so much fun playing the character that the actor can come to you and say, please don't kill me. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't happen in movies unless you're about to get, unless your character is getting written out because you're getting fired or something. <laughs> but in TV, like, this guy, do I really have to die in episode nine? Like, let me live. And you you kind of go home at night like, this must be what God feels like. <laughs> do, do I spare them or do I let them live? It's the weirdest feeling. But um, he died. <laughs> it, it was uh, it was interesting. But yeah, I like TV, and I'm just now kind of learning how to work that quickly. And there's so much good TV. It's it's um, you know it's just another way to to get some, your stories out there. So yeah, I mean, I don't think there'll be some other version of of a TV show that we do at some point. Hopefully with some of the same actors. Mm, awesome. So Cameron Crow, thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you for yeah. being here. I, I feel like we I have about uh, ten more hours of questions for you. So <laughs> so hopefully you'll be back at some point. Um, That'd be great. I loved doing the the Harry Styles piece. Thank you to all of you guys for uh, making it happen. Absolutely. So this has been Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next Friday at 1 p.m. and every Friday at 1 p.m. on volume. And in the meantime, subscribe and download us as a podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Have a great one.